Hello friends, how's it going? My name is Matt Barr, you're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, the show where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in skateboarding, surfing and snowboarding. Thanks for checking this episode out, I hope you enjoy it. I've got Ben Powell on the show this week, which means it's time to reach into that big bag of Looking Sideways cliches because yes, Ben really honestly truly was on that apocryphal big list of original guests I wrote down back at the beginning of 2017. Regular listeners are going to be thinking, well, how long was this fucking list? But he was, and the truth is, he's been turning me down ever since. But I kept chipping away. I've been messaging him fairly frequently over the last four years, and here we are. He's finally agreed. I think Ben's the guest I've been trying to persuade to come on the show the longest, to be honest. I mean, a big part of doing this is asking and being knocked back by people you'd like to speak to. And after a while, I usually take the hint. But in Ben's case, I kept on persevering. Why? Because, well, I challenge you to find somebody who's made a bigger impact on skate culture in this country. Although he will no doubt cringe to his very fingertips to hear me say that when he listens to this. But I reckon it's true. It's part of the team behind Sidewalk, the much-loved, much-missed successes to Read and Destroy magazine that has done so much to shape the UK skate scene. Ben championed every aspect of UK skate culture with wit, integrity, irreverence and also when required deadly seriousness for almost 30 years. If it happened, he definitely wrote about it and he probably filmed it too because filming, as we discussed, was also a big part of Ben's MO. So in the end, as you probably gathered, I did break down Ben's resistance and this sprawling conversation was the result. Of course, we spoke at length about Ben's life and career, but this is very much a conversation rather than an interview in the classic sense. Although towards the end, I did ask Ben a few of the quickfire questions I'd garnered from an Instagram poll. As you're going to gather, Ben is opinionated, passionate, excessively modest, a total skate geek and frequently hilarious. I think you're going to guess that I enjoyed this one very much indeed. Quick note on the audio. We did record this one over the internet and over the course of such a lengthy chinwag, of course, the signal dropped out a few times, which I have tried to sort out, but it does mean we ended up talking over each other at a couple of points and even interrupting each other, which I know some people absolutely hate. hope you can bear with me on the couple of occasions that I missed these incidents um, because this is a good one and I really hope you, you see it through to the end. All right, I'll be back with Housekeeping Corner as usual in a couple of hours time but in the meantime here's me and Ben Powell breaking the fourth wall enjoy on the Ross Kemp vibes what are you drinking it's a northern monk are you aware of that one it's a Leeds uh, brewery but a lot of my mates work there it's a Called faith in reference to presume to religion rather than God. I was going to say that's what instantly my cultural reference library flicks to. Um, it's probably an age thing. I'm off. I'm I'm drinking a bit again. Um, people right. that listen to this will be really bored of hearing me say this, but I've kind of been off the booze all year, so I'm doing the repertoire of um, you know, all the all the modern non piss non horse oh, piss fancy, fancy booze. Well, fancy non-booze booze, you know. Like, all right, okay. Erding is good. Have you drunk that? Er- er- Erding is all right, yeah. I don't yeah, mind Erding. Yeah, that's the, uh, the term time 
I can't drink, so I've got to get up at 10 to 6, but I want to pretend I'm drinking. The but as right. you can see by the width of my head compared to the width of your head, I probably need to stop drinking more than you do. Uh, I mean, for me, it was definitely like a kind of, well, you know, like we, uh, you get issued a binge drinking car, don't you, when you grow up in the north in the yeah. 70s and 80s. So I've been trying to reset things mm. a little bit so that I don't, whenever I have a drink, I don't immediately have like six. Um, <laughs> she's been going all right, actually. So I took like a good six months off. Mm. And then I've had, I went to a wedding a couple of weeks ago, which is obviously like quite a challenge, um, but managed to like have a few and then not get hammered. And then, yeah, so we'll see, we'll see. But I did have a pint last night and I was like, I had a pint of Guinness. I was like, fucking hell, this is pretty good in it. So uh, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll see. Brass Eye said, you know, it's not a drug, is it? It's a drink. I mean, it is a drug. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, they're, they're, I see that they're, they're, they're coming they're, back, they're, aren't they? They're coming back, aren't they? It often reminds mm. me of you because I have uh, I have quite a clear memory of my first year at Permanent watching Alan. It's I'm Alan Partridge with you, <laughs> Forder, uh, Mark Baines, and Horsley in yeah, that like, sounds the, about right. The very first sort of Permanent office where there's that little, uh, I think where Lynn ended up having a office is like a sofa and little lounge. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a that guy Neil who does science versus life posted a picture of Baines actually on his Instagram page from that area yesterday. You remember the right out the back of the office there was Vail Housing, I presume. Yeah, yeah. Like, and the, the, that was that the record of the closest photograph ever taken next to the office. It went yeah, out you guys. Baines kick flipped off the wall over it. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember because I remember you lot used to do like shoot around there quite a lot, didn't you? And yeah, um, yeah. How to yeah. sequences around the back of the church and all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I guess my first question is why why'd you change your mind? Because obviously I've been going on at you now for about four years. <laughs> uh there's a few reasons. Number one, because you were kind enough to ask me to contribute to your book. And even more Thank magnanimous, you. which is fantastic, obviously. Thank very you. good. I was very proud to be asked. And also you were magnanimous enough to pay me, so I thought it would be somewhat uh churlish to refuse <laughs> that's the reason number one uh reason number two i've got a four-year-old daughter and i'm now not the editor of a national skateboard magazine and obviously i was how old was she when i stopped doing it maybe less than one so i thought for posterity's sake i should do it really my wife kind of prodded me into doing it and because right. you're, you're persistent in a really polite way matt yeah, I you, did, quite... you didn't just get fucked off with it after I said no three hundred times. No, I have been quite persistent with you. Yeah, uh, I mean to be honest, there's a lot of that. Well, you know what it's like. You fuck me. You've chased people for interviews so yeah, much yeah, time. Yeah. I have, and you, like there's a there's a lot there's a lot of this, isn't there? My reluctance to do it, kind of, is well, you know me. I mean, you haven't, we haven't seen each other for a long time, but um, I don't really like trying to claim shit and it felt yeah. like it'd be like me going oh fucking hell i did this and i did that but i've listened to your podcast i know it's not like that it's probably just my paranoia hence why i'm probably drinking george michael's northern monk uh, <laughs> tipple do you know what i mean yeah yeah i have paid you for the book right let's get mm. that out of the way first yeah yeah I you thought... have absolutely i mean i would have done it for free anyway but that was the i can't say no after you've kindly asked me to contribute to such a brilliant thing can i 
oh man i was i was honored i was honored i was very honored to be asked to do it matt yeah yeah i mean you know i was always um like when i got when i started working for white lines which was i think like 96 but then i started sort of full-time 97 and you you were obviously there and no, that's probably the same for me. I, I did it from the beginning, but I didn't have a job until issue 13, the Bulala, Melon, Fakie, and the full pipe thing in Bristol. Yeah. So, and that was 1997, because that's when I moved from Nottingham to... To Abingdon. To that, yeah, well, Abingdon Road to, yeah, to Oxford, yeah. Right, so about the same time. But I was always, um, you know, I felt like such a bluffer. <laughs> and I remember going to um, permanent... And basically nicking a load of sidewalks and mm. kind of taking them home and being a bit like, I'm just going to copy what they do. <laughs> but, but none of we didn't have a fucking clue what we were doing. None of us had but, any training or any idea. I mean that I, I'm not just saying that about sidewalk. I mean about all the magazines that were produced around then. Not no. one person involved in making magazines, apart from the publishers, had any experience of doing magazines, did they? Yeah, I often think about Jim these days and um, with quite a lot of guilt. <laughs> yeah, we were twats, basically, because he pretty much let us do whatever the fuck we wanted, backed by his own potential personal financial downfall. What a legend. It's mortifying, isn't it? Mm. And we were, we were particularly... I, th- I don't know what it was like, the ad editorial split on the skate mm. side. I can't imagine it was quite as... Like, you know, on snowboarding... It was quite a thing because it because like the ad industry had such sway, like the ad mm. industry, the industry had such sway because mm. they were basically bankrolling it through the ads, Mm-mm-mm-mm. which obviously when I got that job I was blissfully unaware of, and oh, and, yeah. and also and then, and then when I found out, which is so funny, even saying that, really didn't care. No, I'm sure we'll come on to that at a later point in this conversation, but yeah, we were exactly the same. I think maybe we had slightly less adverts to editorial, maybe because. I guess for the first, I don't know, I can't remember exactly when documents started, but for the first, I don't know, three, four years, there were no competition, was there? So cover sales were pretty sick for Sidewalk for quite a long time. So obviously advertising funded it all, but I think, I don't know really. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, big up Jim Peskett, because as a 50-year-old man with a child, I can't actually believe that we were allowed to do all the shit we were allowed to do. I know it's shocking. It is, but yeah, big up Jim. I, I saw him at Ispo the other day, and I did apologise, and he looked really mm. baffled. Yeah, I've had that conversation with him as well. And he was like, "What are you talking about? It's fine." Yeah, he was like, just cool. like, "What, what, what are you on about?" Then I did remind him of the time that he threw a tire out of a car window when we were driving through Germany at a right. phone box, and he was like, "See, <laughs> I was just as bad as you." So all right, there you go. How, like, how old was he? Do you reckon when we were doing when, like in like when it was the heyday? Say so year two thousand, what would mid thirties? Yeah, I mean, I, we were all like, I don't know, well, you're about the same age as me, aren't you? A bit younger. I'm forty five. I was twenty one. All right, yeah, yeah. So we were twenty six, twenty seven. I reckon he was probably forty, maybe. Yeah, because he had like two. His two kids were like maybe eight and ten at that point. I think so. Maybe a bit younger, but yeah, yeah, probably about, but about forty, but too young to be fucking. You know, staple gunning your fucking mortgage to a back of a bunch of idiots like all of us, I suppose. But yeah, I know. Hats off, hats off, Jim. So, all right, let's get the Olympic chat out of the way first, because um, <laughs> it did just happen, and it is obviously yeah, yeah. 
a, you know, a fairly seismic cultural. Well, the Daily Star had let's all buy the kids skateboards as their front page, didn't they? Which is fairly mental. Yeah, and I listened to. I, I mean, not that I'm a you know a, a patron of the Daily Star, but that was the most sort of egregious pro skateboarding yeah. one of them all, you know. Yeah, and like the radios came it as well. Like even mm. even tonight, there were you know he's like oh Sky Brown. So did you watch it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I stayed up and watched the the women's street. It's funny because. My wife's a skateboarder, obviously, and she's Japanese. So I'm kind of clued into the Japanese skateboard scene, but primarily the female Japanese skateboard scene. She's friends with a girl called Kama, who is like an OG uh, female skate pro, and she was the coach or whatever. The, you know, like when, when the cameras panned, there was already somebody with a clipboard, like being yeah. hyped. She was the anyway. Yeah, so yeah. I already kind of knew that, as far as women's skateboarding was going to go, the Japanese were going to piss on everyone, which is exactly what happened, isn't it? And it was like 13-year-old girls front crooking 13 stair handrails. So I stayed up to watch what this sort of inevitable um, <laughs> drubbing of American hubris was quite amusing. So, yeah, I watched it. it <laughs> that was almost like the second was. sport, wasn't it? The kind of like, let's all... Um... Sorry, that you know the second discipline. Like, let's all laugh at the American hubris because obviously um, Niger's <laughs> fairly spectacular um, implosion. Certainly, yeah, I didn't really watch the men's the men's stuff. I watched the men's park, but I, I, I did intend to, but I fell asleep. But um, yeah, I thought it was pretty mad. I mean, whatever you know, you can scream at the tide all you want, dressed in your fucking all black outfits with your tattooed head, but it's not going to stop the tide coming in, is it? Do you know what I mean? You don't no. have to like it. I still don't really know whether, I don't know, culturally it's a good thing. But I went. I drove home the other day. I, I can't remember. I'd been been somewhere. And I was, there's a car park down the road, which was our, me and my wife and my kid went and skated there all the time during lockdown. You weren't allowed to do anything. And then it became a COVID testing centre as such as 2020. That's going to happen, isn't it? And now it's, it's turned back into the sort of the curb spot. And I was driving home and I looked out the car window and I was like, ha there's six 12-year-old girls just session in a car park. So regardless of what you think of, you know, organised Olympic, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the IOC. I'm sure you're not. You snowboard, you probably don't like them very much either, but that's no. sick. You know what I mean? That's unprecedented and, that, and that's a paradigm shift that can only be for the good, really. So what I was going to say about the, the drubbing of American hubris. I don't want to be anti-American, but the, the thing is, is that Japan bizarrely doesn't really have any kind of pro skate infrastructure, not like Europe does or America does. So the fact that all those people, the kids, particularly the girls, did what they did is like as pretty much as pure as it gets, really. You know what I mean? Like if we're sticking our flag of, we don't like the Olympic because we're too hardcore. I'm going to punch myself in the teeth. Then you should probably <laughs> be pretty hyped about a 13 year old girl front cooking a, a 12 stair Andrew who's probably grown up skating some shitty prefab park because they're not, you know what I mean? They don't have TFs, the people who've, that's training facility for those of people unaware of that um, acronym. <laughs> they do, that doesn't exist. It probably will do now because they've just won a shitload of medals, haven't they? But on the other yeah. hand, yeah, the Olympics are whack, whatever. It's like really corrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I watched it with my kids. She was buzzing. Sky Brown spinning yeah. through the air. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, the French, I've got the French bloke's outfit. I was, I've got which to be one, Vincent Malou? Yeah, the, the, other the, one. the all the all white, you know. The all yeah, white that was combo. a was a strong look, wasn't it? To be fair, it was a, it was a strong look. I've got to say, I was I was impressed. The Japanese boiler suit thing was pretty heavy as well. We're talking about on that. There's a, I'm not going to shout it out because there's a, we've got a skate forum. It's basically dance nets. There's loads of old men with knackered knees. Quite a few people talked about how sick the uh, the Japanese all white boiler suit outfit was. So shout out N26 geeks there, but. Yeah, no, it was a spectacle, wasn't it? That's what it's supposed to be. It's cinema of the spectacle, isn't it? It's better than watching people chuck javelins around, isn't it? No disrespect to javelin enthusiast. That's the thing that always gets me, though, like, because you still get, the like, in the mainstream sort of coverage of it, it's the same with surf mm. and, and snow as well. You still get the whole, like, hey, stoked, you know, like, <laughs> as, as if, yeah. you, you know what I mean? Like, and then, and then you look at the Olympics and you're like, have you seen the fucking dressage? Like, yeah, yeah. have you seen how weird that I is? Got, see, dressage got a bit of a kick in though, didn't it? Dressage is, I mean, I know what you mean. It's this weird, arcane, in inverted commas, posh thing. But there's wacker things than dressage. But I mean, I suppose it's a diametric opposite to skating, isn't it? As we're on the topic of Olympics, and I'm going to forget to say if I don't say it, going back to what you said about Jim Peskett before, this connects to the Olympics because Ed Lee, Obviously, was one of your colleagues at White Lines. Um, now he's on the BBC and whatnot. I remember him losing a brand new laptop one day after Jim had given it to him. I remember that really well. And yeah. just went home without it. And Jim didn't kill him. He got bollocked, right? Well, I was going to say he got absolutely baked. I'm sure he won't mind me saying. It was in the pub yeah. in London, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, and just walked out. And that's when like, laptops were prohibitively expensive yeah it? no it was a big deal it was a big deal because um me and chris had one which basically chris bought because mm. he was flush because he was like pro snowboarder and mm. we used chris that moran to... chris right yeah, yeah 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 and we we use that to to basically do the mag from france so, so chris had one and chris was the only person i knew that had one so when jim actually when ed actually taught jim into like buying this laptop it was like this massive deal and mm. then, yeah, and then he's like, oh, yeah, I lost it. He never got it back, did he, either? Yeah. So he didn't lose his microphone when he was doing uh, Olympics, did he? From they did great, things, though, right? Great. Yeah, they were good, man. They, him and Churchill did really well. Well, apparently NBC was Graham Bell, if you know who he is. The guy who invented the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> he's no, the no, guy that presents, Bell. He presents Ski Sunday with Ed. And Does he? All right, okay. And he got the commentary gig on the on NBC because I was follow because I follow like probably like you I follow loads of Yanks on mm. online and a friend of mine Todd Richards who's a very very good skateboarder and snowboarder he, yeah, he yeah, was on he was on Twitter going like who is this English kook who's doing <laughs> like the commentary on NBC and I, I was I was like and yeah, oh yeah they were talking shit about someone English an English commentator on the Slap forum and I presume they must have been just slagging. Mark and Edoff, but it must have been this guy. Yeah, it was it was Graham Bell from TV's Ski Sunday. What shit in what respect? Just getting like too overexcited public schoolboy sort of hype or what? I mean, I know him. He is not a skater, and he knows absolutely nothing about skateboarding. I mean, that'd be like <laughs> you doing the skiing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, mean, I wonder. I do. It's like he's going fast. He's done a turn, but his trousers. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was like, Jesus, all right. Yeah, I, I mean, so the other thing, obviously... Well, what about you, you? What did what did you think about the Olympics? As somebody who's openly said they didn't 
you, you, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you and your compadres perceived it as kind of shitting on snowboard culture, right? It sort of took some of the the, the intricate, not intricacy, but it made it all about spins and like fucking that shit, didn't it? Jockey stuff. We're 20 years down the line. And I mean, the initial controversy without going too deeply into it came about because mm-hmm. essentially when snowboarding got included in the Olympics, which is 98, mm. of, you know, they've got to create the qualifying for that. And there was, there was mm. a, there was an existing organization called the Snowboard International Snowboard Federation that already ran a, an event series. Mm. Quite naturally, you would have given that to them, and the IOC gave it to the Ski Federation, which meant that the Snowboard Federation... Ah, oh, there was the same internecine yeah. battling in skateboarding. Yeah, I thought it'd be similar. So there was that. Um, and then now that... Yeah, I mean, because obviously the debate is always like, what's going to happen to the culture when it gets this main... You know, in the glare of this mainstream... Um, mm. exposure and yeah that that's that tends to be the kind of argument that it's that it's like mm. precipitated a type of progression which is uh damaging for this for snowboarding i mm. mean i think what but i think these days it's just it's just a part of the landscape you know what happens is basically yeah. there's everything for three years out of the four no one thinks about it and then for the fourth year it's like the the entire focus Everyone mm. goes a bit mad. Um, there's a little spike afterwards, and then everyone forgets about it and goes back to normal. Which I, imagine... I, mean, I do totally. I sympathise with why people don't like it, but and you know, I got lots of friends that own independent skate shops, and COVID plus the Olympics has like helped them out. You know, they can do stuff now, and you only got to spend ten minutes on Instagram to see how interconnected the female scene is, and it's yeah, bonkers, yeah. man. You know, and that's not down to the Olympics, but it's definitely. There's an element of, you know, of that. Like I said, just I just uh, the the main thing that pleased me was that the prediction that the Japanese were going to smash the shit out of it was true, <laughs> which is good because they're polite and modest and their yeah. way is different in it. Do you know what I mean? It's not so look at me, which is nice. That's kind of that's sort of what skateboarding is supposed to be about, isn't it? Being a bit modest and not being a twat. Well, that's a great Not segue sure. to ask, ask you what you thought of the James Hope Gill uh, storming a teacup. Ah, I don't know, really. You know what? I got paid to pay attention to the internet for so long that I just <laughs> don't anymore now. Like, no, that's not me avoiding the issue. I just, I mean, I'm, I'm 50 next year. I skate, whatever. It didn't offend me. Probably wasn't a very sensible thing to say, but I saw it and then... I went to the playground with my three-year-old daughter and didn't think anything else about it. It was quite liberating, Matt. I suppose you don't have that option, really, doing what you do, but that's part of the reason why I didn't really want to carry on chasing a career in the skateboard industry, in inverted commas, because it would mean that I have to give two shits about stuff like that. You have to have an opinion. Yeah, that's... that's well, yeah, that's, I, my that's opinion is fair. whatever, and then I looked at something else. Yeah, and we watched Number Jacks on, you know, on CBeebies. So is that was that a thing? What Number Jacks? <laughs> at, no, the at the end of it because you did it, you did it for so long, didn't you? And uh, was was there a bit of a relief then to sort of like? Not kind, really, kind of... no, because I mean I don't know how much you know about the ins and outs of that, how that happened, but it was pretty snide how the whole thing happened. It was, I was I'd just done an interview with Board of South Sea. Shout out to them and. uh 
I went to log on to put it on the website and my the login wouldn't work. And I was like, oh, okay, this is probably not good. And then boom, they go, see you, fuck off. You haven't got a job anymore, but that's fine. Um, and then it took me a while. I was pretty, I don't know, disheartened. It's probably uh, putting it mildly because I've invested 25 years of my life into it, haven't I? Yeah. But a bit further down the line when I realized that it's possible to actually be alive and not have to worry about what kickflip's better than the other kickflip. It was a bit of a relief, yeah. The main the main relief side of it was because after it stopped being a magazine, which was 2015, I think, when it was kind of, oh, we're going to do this, and everyone was reading those fucking circular social media emails telling you pivot to video, pivot to this, it's all about that, written by people who work at Facebook telling you what to believe. Um, <laughs> it wasn't really that much fun anyway because I had to pay attention to you know, the thing you just asked me about, all that ageist thing and dealing. I, I spent my life glued to my phone. Fuck that. Load of shit. So, yeah, it was, you know, what did we have? Like 85, 90,000 Instagram followers, half a million people on Facebook. Yada, yada. That's a lot of responsibility to carry around, man. Do you know what I mean? It was quite good to be just like, get fucked. I don't have to care about any of that anymore. <laughs> Particularly because I don't use any of them platforms personally. I have an Instagram account where I just post pictures of my kid. I don't use Facebook, and I was having to post on it. I don't fucking know how many. 20 times a day or something, seven days a week. That's You could Jesus. feel your soul being powdered. Do you know what I mean? So, yes, it was. There's more yeah, to it yeah. than that. But to answer your question, was it a relief? It was a relief to walk away from the just the nasty, vindictive, just grim pointless futility of social media yes on that shit yeah i mean you sent me the book didn't you the 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 mm. reasons to give up your social media accounts and yeah yeah i mean yeah i I think i'm in a similar position to you with it really because it i mean i'm quite lucky with what this little weird niche i've carved out for myself because mm. like I, I i fully just do this on my own terms really so like i use instagram mm. and i quite like that because everyone that i sort of interact with on there is really nice mm. you know it's like a little fluffy community over there facebook mm. i can't even look at it it literally makes... i haven't been on it for like five or six years i can't imagine what can, it's like now i can feel like the, <laughs> the, the like a physical stress meter rising whenever i look at it i honestly hate it well that's what he and says it, in that book isn't he the the way that what he calls it the bummer algorithm is that the facebook in particular um foregrounds nastiness and confrontational not futile bullshit because that's what gets engaged it's all these fucking words engagement go fuck yeah. yourself man you know what i mean <laughs> But you're lucky because the podcast medium, and he even says that in that book, is it's not really, it's not um, dancing to the the beat of that drum, is it? It's, it is because you promote it on social media, but it's a long form thing. It, you're not going to come on here and be sold cuprinol or whatever. Are you? Do you know what I mean? I have been you're offered. On, this, <laughs> have you? But you should go for it, man. Just put some up fence over there. It's well good. No, but you know what I mean. This, yeah, I yeah. think this is as far removed as you can get from it while still doing it. I mean, I'm a bit an hypocrite anyway, because I'm saying I don't use Facebook, but Instagram's owned by Facebook, and it so is WhatsApp. So by default, you're always using it. Yeah, and I get that. I get that. But it, yeah, it, I, I'm the same, basically. I think 
especially when you've sort of come from journalism and you've come from print and you know I think you're probably a bit like me quite idealistic back in the day about you know what you were doing and you know like how seriously you took it I seem to remember having many conversations about that type of thing with you and mm. like you know for, for, from from that to this you know you've got that but then you've got the whole like old fart thing man shaking fist at clouds that you try mm. to kind of resist as well like so but you know I don't want to I'm not like castigating anybody who's into it like be into what you want but for my own personal health and like gavaskin intake i'm glad that i have nothing to do with any of it really yeah so when so so when it was shifting in that way and you were like because it shifted pretty quick didn't it and obviously you went from like uh permanent to factory and then i think what you're talking about when you said the shit show about how it kind of finished that was that really horrible sort of take when it got by square up yeah that did like a I mean, the writing was on the wall the minute you're in a, in a publishing company that makes a magazine for people who work in the square mile, in it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm yeah, some scumbag yeah. from Wakey talking about Smith Grinds and there's some guy driving Lamborghinis around fucking wherever. Do you know what I mean? And then that was like, a, there was like a hideous takeover there, wasn't there? And it all went sort of tits up, right? Is that, that's what you mean? Yeah, it? Like... I mean, it, it, it was inevitable, really. It was the... It was the end of print, but only insofar as the old model of doing it with a publisher and an accounts department and, like, you know, a sales team aggressively ringing up everyone trying to get ads. Because there's a renaissance in print now. You know, there's Skateboarders Companion, there's Grey, there's Free, there's Vague, Dog Piss, there's countless. There's a new magazine, which I'll look up in a minute on my phone, which I've just started following another guy. There's one... But they're all done on a completely different business model. They're like one-man band things, aren't they? The, well, they're like zines in a way, aren't they? Well, they are, but they're like... I mean, not all of them. No, I, I don't. Mean, I don't. I don't mean. I don't mean. I don't mean format-wise. I mean like the ethos. You know, like they're, the, yeah, they're the, done. They're coming from. I mean, I don't know if anyone's really making a living out of it in the same way that you know we did and our and our and you know ancestors at skateboard or rad or whatever did. But, yeah. It, all that was dying was that old, archaic, multi-layered way of doing making magazines because yeah. you couldn't make enough money to justify the edifice behind it. If it's three dudes, you can still do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like it's the ethos back. It's gone. It's gone full circle, hasn't it? So now, like, yeah, you know, yeah. what it's they're all sick. doing those magazines. It's really good. It's man. like proper passion project, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. Which is which is brilliant. But I guess what the question I was going to ask you is because you obviously were involved for so long did you feel a responsibility to stick it out because it sounds like as yeah, it evolved kind you, of, yeah. it became harder and harder for you personally right i try and put this without sounding like i don't want to sound fake modest but i don't want to be egotistical so how can i so right you know this and younger people probably this won't make any sense to them but our era and the era before particularly in skateboard culture magazines were the you know the the signposts and the guardians of culture, weren't they? And that was something that I took very seriously and Wig did and Ryan Gray did and Leo and Andy and everyone and equally Percy and Sam who worked at Document, that you had to strive to push skateboarding nationally, if that makes any sense. I mean, that's probably like quite an archaic way of looking at it now because everyone can push themselves now with Instagram and all that. I mean, I have conversations with kids where I work now and I'm like, oh, yeah, before the internet. And they're like, well, what do you mean? It's like if people got no <laughs> conception that, that you know, like it was like, I guess the, the best way of putting it is it was like a big benign dictatorship, wasn't it? Where people such as me and 
TLB before and Skane and Percy Dean and whatnot, who really did care about the culture, were sort of in charge of how it was presented. You know, and lots of people didn't like what we did and thought we were pricks and this, that and the other. But yeah, we did take it really seriously. It was like carrying the weight of a of a culture a little bit. I mean, and particularly when it came to, a, I mean, I was an obsessive collector of VHS tapes because all that culture was on this. And then that format died and all this shit died. And then, you know, Ryan Gray and myself would upload stuff and Bert rip it and put it onto the ill-fated player that shall not be named rather than just using YouTube, which is what they should have done, but they didn't do to just try and preserve that shit for future generations, you know, because before, when you think about how new all this shit is, what, Facebook, YouTube started in 2005? It's still really new, man, and, like, we were really striving yeah. to... But not anti-the-internet. I think we were quite early adopters of it at Permanent, particularly with Sidewalk. Like, we had a forum from... It's dead now because the people who bought the website are idiots and didn't realise that it got on, what was it, 2 million views a year and they just let it die. But anyway, that was, like, we were keen to embrace it because it was a way, another way of like what's the how can I put it like giving a space to talk about all this shit that if you don't talk about it skateboard is based on stories isn't it and if you don't have a space to talk about it then they disappear they're forgotten and that that history's gone you know which is another which to go back to talking about the Olympics that's why people don't like the Olympics because they think that that's going to usurp all these other stories and create this master narrative that cuts all this other shit out from my perspective, the other shit, preserving that and putting it in a magazine and saying, you know, this dude did this or this skate spots that or this person did that, that was a massive responsibility. So, yeah, but by once the mag had gone and it was just instead of working against like a monthly deadline, you were working against a deadline every half an hour for Facebook. It's like kind of feel a responsibility, but I kind of, I'm over it, but I've done it for that long. I'm not just going to leave because if you want me to go, you need to fucking pay me. Fuck you. Do you know what I mean? Which didn't happen either, but whatever. That was the, does that answer the question? Or I just rambled on like a twat. No, no, it does. Cause that's what I'm interested in. Cause like I say, I know what, well, what I'm interested in is the fact that obviously as it shifted, you obviously from what you've been saying personally found it not that pleasant really. Like, you know, dealing, no, I dealing was with fucked, what man. Like after I got made redundant, I was like seriously mentally not in a good place for a long time. I mean, again, refer back to my esteemed colleague Percy Dean. He did. I don't know if you've heard. Have you listened to Joel Curtis's podcast? Create it. Let me just find out what it's called. Hang on, because I was talking to Percy about. It. In fact, him doing that kind of made me think. Yeah, right. I should probably do this. Um, he talked about after document went, which obviously happened. 10 years before Sidewalk went. It's called yeah. the Skate Creative Podcast. And he talked about the sort of, the like the feeling of hollowness of like, fuck, now what am I going to do? You know, and he's obviously, he's gone on to be a very successful filmmaker and photographer. But because it's, because you're so like consumed by doing something like a skate mag, because it is such a personal passion thing, particularly if you come from our generation where, no one gave a shit about it. Everyone's all about it now. It's on the front page of the Daily Star. But when we were kids, obviously no one cared. Um, it's really hard to see that you have any transferable skills. You know what I mean? And that was for me, yeah. like, 
I was, yeah, I was fucked, man. I was like not in a good place at all for a long time after it went down because that was, it was so closely tied into what my identity was that I was like, okay, well, I've either just wasted 25 years of my life or I'm going to have to reinvent me so I don't know what to do. Like, as I say, Percy's put it much more eloquently than I did about that kind of existential crisis that you can get from doing, because it's really niche. And within skateboarding, as Percy said, no one appreciates the skill set you have because you're just that dude that does everything. But then if you yeah. go somewhere else and you're like, oh, yeah, we all went to this country and then we made a video and then we had a premiere and then we made 225 magazines and we did one every month. It's like people are impressed by it. But for better or worse, skateboarding is, doesn't – it has quite a short cultural memory. Less so now because the internet's given a space for like – people to be interested in nostalgia and history and whatnot. But for a long time, it was always, all right, well, that's happened. Fuck that. Like, do something else. Well, how do you feel about it now, then? Those 25 years that you put into it? Well, I do something completely different now. I work in education, you know, so... And it seems like I'm kind of good at that, I guess. So a lot of the... I work in a school that deals with kids that have issues about being in mainstream education. And a lot of the kind of kids that I am teaching are very similar to the kind of kids who tend to end up being really good at something like skateboarding because they don't go to school because they don't give a fuck about you, you know, boundaries and they're not easily swayed by, they're not going to leave when a security guard tells them to, and they'll stay up until four o'clock in the morning doing what they want to do. So that was a transferable skill. And also I am lucky and privileged that I am still given the opportunity to regularly contribute to to free and skateboarders companion and to vague and do stuff for slam city and black sheep. And like people seem to still want me to do stuff. So it's like almost like doing the mag, but that doesn't have to be my living anymore. And I don't have to, I can just, do an interview and then press send and that's it. I don't have to care about how it gets laid out or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I think probably the best answer to the question is I've gone from somebody who did skateboarding as a job and I've gone back to just it being like a hobbyist again. You know what I mean? I don't feel like I have to – I don't feel any pressure to do anything. If I want to go down the curbs with my daughter and not land a trick for two hours, it doesn't matter. So similar to what I was saying about it being liberating, it's quite nice. You know, I can just be somebody who's got a skateboard again. I don't have to be that guy. Right. So when you, like when, when it happened and you got made redundant, did, did, did yeah. it take you a while to sort of land on the education option then? Like how did that Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got made redundant on the 5th of September of 2018. And the closing day to uh, get on PGCSEs was the 4th of September. So it meant that I had a full year of like, shit, what am I going to do? Blah, blah, blah. I actually was offered a job working for what what was formerly Skateboard England, but I accepted it and then I wasn't in the right mental state and I just decided that it wasn't a good thing for me to become, to put myself back in that world again. So I politely declined that. And then I, I have a friend, shout out Michelle, who is a teacher who said well if you you know do you want to come and just do some voluntary stuff to give yourself something to do so I didn't work for a a bit and I went and volunteered in a school and was like all right this is pretty hectic but I could probably do this (laughs) and then 
exactly, well, a year and two days to the day that I'd been made redundant, I started doing the PGECE course. So I had like a year of self-doubt and, you know, I've got a mortgage, I've got a family, I've got financial responsibilities, but is what it is, isn't it? No one died. It's not, you know what I mean? I'm not fucking Marcel Proust or something. I haven't really got anything to worry about. It was all good. It was just a bit hard to deal with. No, but you know what I mean? I don't want to make it sound like some fucking philosophical wandering through uh, Pete, Pete and Bernie's philosophical steakhouse to refer back to Alan Partridge again. <laughs> it was pretty grim just because, yeah. you know, I would, when I'm, what am I, I'm 40, 48 now, so it would have, I would have been 45, 46. My daughter was less than a year old. I'd gone from having like a decent income because I'd done it for a long time and like a certain, you know, status and I worked from home which ironically everyone else on my street thought I must be a criminal because I work from home and now everyone else but me works yeah. from home on my street. But um, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty grim, but whatever's me now. So. And can I ask you about that? Was that, cause you mentioned identity a couple of times. So was that, was hmm. that because it was, was that what it was about? Like the difficulty that you had that year, the fact that because it was tied, cause you know, like you can, you, you sort of be, you're downplaying it a little bit, but when you do something for that long and you're as associated mm. with it as you, as you are and were, you know, you were mm. that guy, you were like, you know, Mr. Sidewalk, basically. Mm. Um, it's quite hard to not let that become your identity and become the thing that you're, especially when you get a bit older and you're aware of like what a good gig it is and also what a very niche yeah, gig yeah. it is. Mm. So, so was that, was that the main thing? It's like, well, who am I? It was no. I mean, the, the main thing was just, Without going into too much depth, I my childhood was one that was plagued with financial uncertainty and whatnot. So the concept of not having a job at my age with a kid and a mortgage and yada yada was the, that was the most pressing thing. But from a the psychological, you know, impact of you know, like even my email address had been Ben at sidewalkmag.com for twenty years. Do you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden I'm like, Okay, that doesn't exist anymore. Um so yeah, a bit, but it also made me realise that it's all, you know, fleeting and what's the word, even essent anyway, isn't it? It's like, yeah, that was I was the guy and whatnot, but now I'm not. So it it was it was grim because it was it wasn't a shock. We all knew it was coming, but it was it was done quite abruptly. But I mean, how else are you gonna like shit on an entire company? It's not gonna be done nicely is it not going to take you out for a picnic and like slip you a tenner and then tell you to walk off into the wilderness so yeah Yeah. not being flippant about it yes it it, that was quite difficult but i soon realized because i needed to do things like buy the shopping that sitting at home and wally wallowing in self-pity about not being the guy anymore was kind of a bit pointless really and wasn't going to get me anywhere and was probably going to make me even more depressed than i was as a result of losing my job or having it taken away or whatever you want to call it. And did you feel like you needed to step away from the skate industry? Oh yeah. Fuck yeah. And I, more, I mean, I was very, very happy that certain people like Marshall uh, Taylor at slam and, and uh, Jake Sawyer at slam and Harry at black sheep and the people at free and people at vague were like reached out to me straight away. Like, Oh, you know, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And I did it because I, I like doing that. You know, I like writing and I like interviewing people and 
whether I'm having a bad time myself or not doesn't impact on that. But worrying about what some guy who runs a, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You've worked in a magazine where like fucking Johnny Six Gloves is pissed off with you because you've used the wrong hashtag on a fucking Instagram post. Like, <laughs> forget about even thinking about that shit anymore. So I'm, yeah. I'm, in a way, it's worked out for the better, you know, like what I do now is hard. And it's it's quite it can be quite emotionally draining and stuff. But when I do the other stuff, the skate stuff, it's like it balances up the, you know, I I, I was lucky enough to avoid doing a proper job for nearly thirty years. So on some karmic level, I've got you know what I mean. Getting up at ten to six yeah. every morning, tough shit, bro. You didn't have to do it for so long. Well, like you were about to say before I, I cut across you, it was a good gig, wasn't it? Yeah, it was sick. <laughs> I got nothing negative to say about it. I had the most amazing opportunities and all the people that I grew up idolizing and wanted to meet. I've met, I've met all of them. I've been skating. I've been all around the world, but you know, again, kids at school, they're, oh, have you been there? I'm like, yeah. And then like, Oh, okay. Maybe you're not just some fat Ross Kemp lookalike, you know, that maybe we should <laughs> listen to what you're saying because you No, but you know what I mean? Like that you take it for granted when you do it. You know, like, but classic example was, I mean, also got flown to Melbourne for five days to cover a contest. Like, think about how fucking insane that is. Like, by the time you got there, you saw jet yeah. lags. You just had to go. We literally got a taxi straight to the pub, stayed drunk the entire time we were there, did what we needed to do, you know, filmed a lot of stuff, blah, blah, blah. I didn't pay for a pet, didn't pay a penny for it. And that happened time and time and time and time again for 25 years. So, kind of knobhead is going to complain about that. It was like being a low-rent pop star without actually having to go on stage. You know what I mean? It was it was decent. Yeah. Decent, putting it mildly. But, yeah, it was a good gig. We were paid – by the end, we were paid pretty well. And uh, be- as Alex Mall always says, real niff – uh, was it rich in life, not in funds? So the, the experiences that we had yeah. collectively were, you know, priceless, really. Yeah, I mean, I think I look at I look at it now, and you do wonder if it'll. Uh, it feels like those days generally are probably gone now. Really, I mean, obviously, we've yeah, got... and not in a bad way. They're just why is a brand going to pay for like ten dudes to go on a trip when the dudes that are on the trip can just take a phone and do it all themselves? You know, that's the yeah. beauty of technology, isn't it? You know, that yeah, yeah. in its in essence, that's an amazing thing because I, you know, part of my drive to get involved in skate mags and filming skate videos, which is another big part of my involvement in it was because all this stuff never got documented, but now everything gets documented and it's all archived. It's all on Instagram. It's all on whatever. And that's a beautiful thing. You know, the bad side of it is, is that those platforms are owned by like semi robotic creeps who are monetizing it, but the actual fundamental, you know, um, ability to document everything that, that, that having a phone and that, you know, you don't need a camera bag. You don't even need a camera. I talked about. I talked with you and Bowman, uh, skater from, well, from Orkney originally, but now works for Thrasher. Was saying that he can see a time in the not too distant future where they won't even take. They won't take camera bags with them when they go on trips. They'll do it all on phones, which you can say. You know, you can, again, like you said earlier, old man shouting at a cloud, or you can just embrace the fact that that's, that's brilliant. And as somebody who's obsessed with being able to see stuff. You're going to be able to see everything because everything's been filmed. Some of it probably shouldn't have been filmed, but 
Mm. You know, you get Neil with Neil Blender, you get Doug Brown or whatever. You kind of, you kind of, it used to, I don't, you, you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. I do. But is this, I mean, let me ask you a question. So you obviously have an MO for these things. So is this what you want to hear? Am I talking shit or is it just all coming out like? I don't have an MO at all. I, I know it sounds like, um, like a line, but I, I really don't like a, yeah, I mean, all I want to do is have a chat, really. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, that sound. Yeah, that sound. That sounds like a proper. Oh yeah, man. No, no, it doesn't well, because it, that's probably what I'd say as well. <laughs> yeah, so not at all, man. I mean, this is this is exactly what I was hoping for. Just let it unfold, you know. Mm. I mean, the thing, you know, because you you're such a requested guest. See, I found that hard to believe. That I'm not suggesting that you you're not telling the truth, but it's a funny thing, man. Like. When we did the magazine, you didn't often hear like that much positive stuff because skateboarding being the way it was in the nineties and whatnot, like you, you weren't sort of open about giving props. We everyone was a bit like, I mean, me too, you know, like regulating it and being deliberately like downplaying when stuff was good. But then when the mag went, there was this like outpouring that you know it meant all this. I mean. I must point out as well, like I'm not sidewalk. It's not me. It's me and Wig and Andy and Rye and Leo and Kev Parrott and Niall Neeson and Neil Chester and everyone who was ever in it and every other photographer and whatnot. It's just, you know, I, that was probably another thing I was a bit uncomfortable about doing this because I don't want to be. I never really liked that, you know, like the magazine is the person thing. I remember asking Jim if I could not be called the editor for that precise reason because I didn't like the connotations that came with it. But obviously, that's a ridiculous thing to ask a publisher of a magazine. But That's so funny. I don't even know if it is, though. I think it's just... It was a collective thing, though. It's not me trying to impose some kind of ideology on it. That's how the magazine worked. There wasn't a hierarchy. I was maybe a bit more bossy because I was a bit more organised than everyone else was, but there was wasn't like anyone was in charge really, you know. But anyway, let's go back to what I was saying. Is that after the mag went, it seemed like whoa, fucking hell! Like people like really liked it. Not everyone, because look, I got messages. Ah, fuck you! Should have gone ages ago. It was shit, which is fine, you know. That's yeah, yeah. People are entitled to their opinion. Um, but the vast, overwhelming response was like oh you know like we grew up with it and what have you so i guess that's maybe why people have asked you to see if i want to do it i don't know yeah i think i think i think it's you know people recognize its importance and recognize you know you're you're like because you've played because you've played it down quite consistently over the years you're like your involvement and stuff but i think everybody is aware of like your role in it and yeah, but it just—I'm not playing it down necessarily. I tell you, take your point about the collective. Like, I'm not—I'm not, I'm not mm. trying to make the—I'm not trying to make any claims about like, oh yeah, you know, Ben was sidewalk. I'm not. Mm-mm-mm. But I think I just think you know, there's intrigue there, and like people definitely—you know—most people are aware of its significance, and there's also just a desire to kind of hear. I think like a, a bit from you, unencumbered. Mm by that baggage now because it's a few years later well it's funny my wife said that to me tonight like you must have done i don't know how many interviews i've done probably ten thousand plus maybe it's like it's not the first time i've ever done one but it's the first time i've properly done one really 
So it is like the boots on the other foot. And that was there was a bit of curiosity on my side, really, to see what it was like. Like, you're doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the other thing is as well, like people want to, you know, like, the, people want to hear the war stories, don't they? Yeah, you yeah, know, true, like, true. And, and I think from my point of view, like in prepping this, I mean, we're, we're getting into sort of proper breaking the fourth wall territory, mm. aren't we? But like, um, I, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a balance to strike there. That's, that's kind of why I did the Instagram thing, to be honest. You know, I never do that. Yeah, I yeah, never yeah, really, yeah. You know, I've done it a few times. I've probably done it about five times and I've done nearly like 200 episodes now. And like, you know, like I, I occasionally do it, but with you, I thought, well, I'm going to do it because I want to know what people actually want to hear from you. And you looked at that. Mm. I know you did. And and there was quite a yeah, few, yeah. like there was quite a few that were basically like, tell, get him to tell us like the craziest story from the nineties. And, you know, there was a lot of that sort of stuff going <laughs> yeah. on. Um, so I think, I think like, it's just a balance, isn't it? You know, people, people definitely want to, want to hear your take on things. And, and I certainly did. It's inconsistent and hypocritical of me as I've spent 25 years of my life prying into other people's stories to make sure that they're documented. That I suppose if people want to know them, I have, you know, I owe a bit. Do you know what I mean? Actually, it's yeah, really well, gratifying that people want to hear from me because I I was always, like, really concerned about did, did I have a purpose if it wasn't revolved around kickflips. And now I do because I do something else, which is a – you know, great social value and whatnot. So it's fine to talk about it now, if you know what I mean. Like with, I think the first time you asked me if I'd done one, if I'd done this with you when you first asked me about it, it would have been like mega negative. And I don't want to be like that because skateboarding's a beautiful thing. You know, it's it's like joy, joy a joyful thing, and it. No one wants to hear some moaning old twat who's got a chance to do all this stuff complaining because it's come to an end and they've had to get up early. <laughs> Did you really feel like you never had a purpose, though? Yeah. I'd be like, what the fuck am I going to do after this? I keep swearing too much, and this is for my uh, daughter to listen to. That's no, bad. Um, I'm sure she's used to it. Yeah, she's not, actually. Uh, <laughs> I'll have you know, Bath. Um, yeah. But I, mean, I remember, I can clearly remember having a conversation with Sam Ashley after they'd left to go and start free, and we were out somewhere like, what was that place called that everyone used to go to? can't remember some pub anyway and he's like well what are you going to do when this ends because it's clearly going to end i mean we all knew it was going to end i was like i don't know man like something that's nothing to do with kickflips but that was like a kind of flippant offhand thing to sort of deflect the conversation because i genuinely had no idea what i was going to do and i didn't i didn't want to chase after getting a job like a peripheral job in skating and no disrespect to anyone who's done that because you know, a lot of my friends are shoe guys or marketing guys or whatever, but without sounding like an egotist, how are you going to go from doing what I did to going to, like, to do that with a straight face, kind of? Because you'd, all you're doing then, you're just being a parasite, man. I had my opportunities, so it was good that I went and did something completely unconnected with it and, you know, let everyone else stuff. Like I said, no disrespect to that, but I didn't want to be a shoe guy. I didn't want, and maybe I could have done that if I'd pursued it, but I was over it at that point. I wanted to do something else. So I, so now I know I have got an identity that's got nothing to do with skateboarding. He says in an and interview new, about skateboarding. So the new job has given you that though. Yeah. To an extent. Yeah. It's, it's completely different environment. And you know, 
you might not know it on a day-to-day basis, but you're clearly doing something that is, of, you know, definite value to society and value to the individuals that you're dealing with. And it's hard and it's not very well paid. I mean, weird things like I'm in a union. That never, I've never considered being in a union before. I mean, not that I'm out like chucking bricks through the, you know, people's windows or all like that. I don't mean it like that, but I mean, like, a, I'm in a, skateboarding is kind of beautiful, but it's also blissfully ignorant about the world outside of skateboarding. But I now I sort of, I can roll in a world where you're allowed to talk about things that aren't who kickflip the snide three down Aldi. Again, not to do a disservice to skateboarding, but it's just a different thing completely, isn't it? No one, no one where I work cares about, they're interested, but it doesn't have any bearing on my day-to-day relevance as a teacher. Your horizons were always a bit wider than that though, weren't they? I mean, you know, you've always, kind of, you've always had, you've always had the, 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 you know, you've always like looked wider than just, just I'm not again not that I'm not that I'm saying just skateboarding I don't no 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 no. and I'm not saying that either but I did have wider horizons but at the end of the day I still worked on some level to promote training shoes for big corporations for 20 odd years and I didn't know what the (laughs) real world no but that you know there's a side of doing a skate magazine it's not reductive though is it it is reductive yeah sorry (laughs) What I'm interested in is is like, so my mate Ewan, um, he's got a good line, which is like, you know, excessive modesty is as annoying as excessive vanity. Yeah, yeah. I agree and, with that. And I may be trying to not, am I doing that? You are a little bit, I think. No, I think, you know, like there's, there's, there's a little, there's a little bit, you're definitely consciously downplaying it. I don't want to sound entitled, though. Like, it, skateboarding doesn't owe me anything, and I was lucky to do what I did. And, yeah, maybe I did a good well, job. my question but is, like, where's that coming from? That's a personality trait that's in me to do with my upbringing and to do with the the, pers- the people that I was surrounded with and my family and, and what have you. And it's also, it's something that's deeply embedded in, like, you know, I started skating in 1983 or something. That's what skateboard culture was then. You didn't shout about how good you were or anything. You could always do it better or you could have done it more stylishly or it could have been more difficult or somebody else has already done it. You know, that that's a, a confluence of, like, my own personal family influences and probably, like, getting into skating at a formative age where that was part of it. You know, and I, I don't want to... That's partly why I didn't want to do this because I don't want to listen back to it and think, oh, man, listen to yourself going on about... <laughs> I'm the fucking guy, and I did this, and I've got gold You're definitely not doing and, that. Oh, that's all right. But equally, you're right. It's not fake modesty. That's It's genuinely how I feel about it. I feel privileged to have had all them opportunities. And there's an element of it's not because I was, like, definitely the best dude out there. It's just everyone else was lazy, and nobody liked writing, and I could do it on time, and I understood what a deadline was. And that didn't exist, so I got the job and other people didn't, you know? That was a bit like how I got into actually. It was a well. Bit there you like, go. That's what I'm saying. Then, isn't it? It's not because yeah. you walk down from the mountain with like sunlight flowing <laughs> behind you with like ten I, I dare, novels you'd written. I dare say I thought perhaps had that self vision at a few unguarded moments for a while there, but no, exactly like it was. Mm. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I did a piece and I remember Chod was just like, fucking hell, you can write. All right, do you want to do some more? <laughs> I remember Chod getting me to write articles for White Lines. They were that desperate. I was like, well, what the fuck do I know? It's like, just exactly. write something about anything. It's all right, cool. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, there was that going on. But um, the other thing that's kind of striking me while we're talking is obviously you've got that quite, you know, puritanical northern um work ethic <laughs> thing going on you've made a couple of references to to things that make me make me think there's because I, I i've got the same thing you know like i find a lot of myself worth from mm-hmm. this idea of myself working hard and working at something that has value you know that that's definitely very linked to my self-esteem mm. um and i've certainly also over the years I'm definitely over it now, but over the years I've definitely had that thing where I've been a bit like, this is actually just a colossal waste of time and energy. And, you know, like I could be doing something way more useful. So is that, is that a fair observation? Like, is that something that's also? Oh yeah, absolutely. I felt like that for a long time, even though I love doing it and I put my heart into it and I tried to do it as good as I could. I still, I still felt like, mate, why didn't I just learn like, word for word like currency exchange or something because i'd be like minted instead of remembering like <laughs> skate captions from 1986 or whatever but i thought that until i started training to be a teacher and still started doing my teacher training which is when i experienced imposter syndrome which is to a certain extent is what we're talking about on like an unprecedented cataclysmic level of like oh man but it's not like your first day on that job to uh to bring that up and I was like, can I go back to lying about trainers again, please? This sucks. <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe it is. I don't, yeah, puritanical's an interesting way of putting it. As a Catholic, I don't know if I'm allowed. Can I, can I be a Puritan? I don't think I can, but. I don't think it's the right word, is it? It's No, no, it's very um, zealous, I guess. Bit of a zealot about it. Like, if you're going to do it, do it properly. Stay up till four in the morning, capturing footage. Like, me and Ryan Gray would go on film events and then like everyone else had got the pub and we'd go straight to the hotel and make the edit like an hour after we'd filmed it because we were getting paid and that was a privilege and that's what you should do that was the right way to do it in our minds you know maybe that's just insanity i don't know well it's drive isn't it in some way i suppose so yeah like, like i said the whole thing with like documentation and whatnot because as i as i said before that the, another big side of my involvement with it is filming i guess as well as doing the doing the magazine so how'd you get into it in the start into what well um let's go skating first just that and then what you ended up doing so uh let me think there was a kid down the road who had like a a polyprop board i mean it's the it's the generic story we didn't have one my mum wouldn't let me have one because they were expensive we borrowed it, me and my brother. It had stars and stripes on it, so it was this sort of weird foreign object, shall we say, and uh, tanning about on that, and then we had to give it back and then didn't think about it for a few years. And then probably like 1982 or 83, my brother Sam and my sort of half-brother James Kitchen both got into skating, and I was, I think I was probably into being like an indie kid or whatever at that point, whatever the that meant subculturally and then I had a go on it and I was like yeah this is sick I want to do this and then 
I went to a shop and realized there were magazines and not just American magazines, there were British magazines. And then that was it. I, that was all I did for the next however long. And that's probably where the, um, so the, I don't know, I probably wanted to do a, do a skateboard magazine, whatever that meant in my head from the moment I first saw Rad and, and skateboard. And then I ended up doing it like 20 years later. So there was like a weird, that's what I mean about like, it's a, there's a, it must be a massive degree of luck because how many people think about that and then it and then it comes true, especially something that niche, do you know what I mean? So that's how I started skating anyway, on a Turbo 2, which you'll probably remember. Like, was a, yeah, the, yeah. The I'm 80s well. equivalent of like yeah. whatever starter boards are now. And uh, realised that if you had a skateboard going into the town centre of a horrible, brutalist northern city, it was actually really exciting. It was like going on holiday every time you went into town. And then, you know, the natural... Um, what do you call it? In progression from there is to keep doing it and go to different places and and what have you. So that's how I started doing it. And I went to university in Nottingham because of Pete Ellicar's interview in Skateboard Magazine with really? photos by Donovan Pen- Donovan Pennant, I think his name was. Yeah, it's like, okay, so there's a there's basically like an EMB Embarcadero thing in Nottingham. It's not that far away. Um, I'll go there, fuck it, what can I do at university? And I went there and ingratiated myself in that scene. And at that point, Nottingham was like one of the biggest scenes outside of London. It had sponsored skaters and skate parks. And, you know, you'd go into town randomly and Gino Iannucci and Kareem Campbell would just be there in the market square for no apparent reason that anyone could work out. And uh, got involved in doing stuff with the shops and, non-stop and then roller snakes i worked in roller snakes who obviously um started system which was the precursor to sidewalk and what have you so just really just through being enthusiastic and wanting to go different places and skate with different people and get better at skating i suppose that's funny that you say that about the um because were you brought up in wakefield is that right yeah i was born in uh on Portland Bill, which in itself is quite weird because, uh, which is off the coast of Weymouth, the first skateboard park in the country was built in Portland by a guy called Lorne Edwards, who was the designer of Stockwell. And it opened right. like two years after I was born when we still lived there. But obviously I didn't go to it because I was a two-year-old child. So there's some kind of weird predestination perhaps there. I don't know. but Portland Bill is that weird... Yeah, it's like a peninsula. Yeah, that, that's where it? the first skate park, the first custom-built '70s concrete park, was built in the in the UK. So it was almost I like I, I was born that. in the right place to end up doing what I did. No, I've I only found out about it recently yeah. through maybe Trawler's book or something else. But right. yeah, big up Lorne Edwards, who who passed away recently last year actually. The way you put that thing about being a kid and going into town skating, being like mm. going on holiday. I've never really thought of it like that, but that definitely rings a bell. Because when I was a kid, that was going to Manchester and going skating. Mm. Like, yeah, that was that was actually the appeal. Now I think about it, like actually that mission. Mm. That's what made it exciting. It added like a magic aura to wherever you went. You know, you could go on like a get on the X10 or whatever and go to Doncaster. It took two hours, 
And then you got off and it was like going to Venice Beach, but you were actually in Doncaster, but because you had a skateboard, it made it exciting. And, you know, like you're, you're the same rough age, roughly the same age as me. Like the north of England was a, a big concrete shithole back then. There was no gentrification or whatnot, which bizarrely meant that it was really good for skating, you know. So, yeah, that, that yeah, no, there you go. And you mentioned that what like you were from the start drawn to like the mags and and that side of mm-hmm. things. Where'd that come from? Were you like quite a bookish kid then? Yeah, I liked reading. I was like mad into reading. I always have been and writing and whatnot. So it just I didn't like sports really. So it was like okay, so this isn't a sport, but you can do athletic stuff. You can hang out with loads of mad people who like different types of music, and it looks like you're allowed to be brainy because the magazines are like quite full of obscure references to shit and i remember i mean i shouldn't really say this because he, he was one of the people who sent me a negative uh negative messages but he since apologized but steve kane who was the uh the editor of skateboard i remember um used the word pervasive in a, an article and i remember like running and getting a dictionary out and working out to find out what it meant and i was like 13 or something so yeah they, they were quite highbrow rad and skateboard were quite highbrow for the time they were written by like strange characters you know i totally recognize that and that was like a huge part of the appeal for me as well and again you've nailed something that i didn't quite i've never articulated in myself but that because i was kind of similar like quite a brainy kid like you know i was always like told i was like good at writing and you know all that Mm. sort of stuff and and but you know when you're a kid growing up in the north in the 80s like you haven't got there's no outlet for that it's not like yeah. you know it's not like you, it's not like all oh, right well i'm gonna do this you know like and, you're gonna be an influencer down at hillards or whatever <laughs> <laughs> exactly but like so so it was the same for me really like and yeah like be, be like being allowed to like have references and like find those mm. things and and kind of like oh yeah maybe maybe that's people do that okay that's Mm -hmm. interesting yeah that's that's quite and even back then you know like it it was quite at that point they were quite like diverse you know there were all different ethnicities in those magazines even though primarily 80s professional skateboarding was white californian dudes like you'd open up skateboard or rad and there'd be all kinds of different people you know and maybe like where i lived i didn't know anybody like that and i could look in the magazine and be like you know like this dude likes the same thing that i like you know what i mean and as a yeah, yeah. 12 13 14 year old kid stuck in your town with no means to get out and you know no money to go off and explore on your own that's it's like opening like mr ben or something in it you know you go into this little magical world and all you need to do is have your skateboard with you which is it sounds like an incredibly cliched thing and and maybe it sounds like that now because it's so normalized now but it was I remember me and yeah. my brother getting beaten up in Tottenham like because we'd gone then. in to buy Airwalk rip-offs. Like, oh, skateboard dickhead, and just get punched in the face and just accept it. Like, all right, fair enough. I told a mate of mine a story the other day. And this is like, again, this is all like, oh, yeah, fucking Northern 80s war stories. But, yeah, like, <laughs> it, is, it, it, is, it was quite mad. I mean, I remember walking down the street with a baseball cap on and a skateboard and people, like, just taking your cap off your head and then you yeah. can like, pull pull a knife on you you know and I, and we and we just be like oh yeah that's normal see ya <laughs> like as if it was it wasn't an aspirational thing for anyone apart from the people who were doing it was there it wasn't referenced in popular culture it wasn't i mean it was in a couple of pop videos i guess it was on the cover of an nxs album but i was gonna it say wasn't, NXS, it had no kick. Cash, 
yeah, there you go. But aside from stuff like that, it had no cachet at all, did it? Maybe like Police Academy 4 and Back to the Future made it seem a bit cooler. But, yeah, it was, um, you know, and everyone likes to be the romantic outcast, don't they? And it gave you that kind of feeling as well when you were doing it at that point. You know, the outsider, Latranger, you get your Camus out and go and do a kickflip, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Get get the vision of you coming down from the, the mountain top with the tablets, as, mm. you, as you put it earlier. That's it. Um, I've got to ask you about the Steve Kane thing. What was all that about? Uh, just that's that that comes from like a, a that's a, a forum thing. So he was on the forum and he didn't really understand like the um, the ins and outs of how forums work and like people were nasty to him. And I was trying to defend him because he was like my childhood hero. And it all got a bit nasty and heated. And then when the mag went, he didn't say anything lame, but just like, oh well, you had your time. What have deal with it? But subsequently, I got some nice messages off him. He had a similar thing, you know, he'd done this amazing magazine and then all of a sudden, see ya. So he probably was just like bouncing off it. He did a really good interview actually with um, with Neil McDonald, who we should talk about in a bit because he's doing a really exciting book that we should discuss. But he did an interview with Steve Kane. So you probably read it, right, on the Slam site. Yeah, yeah. And and he's doing the, he's doing the book, which is like going to try and, you know, the, the Great Lost Projects, the history of, British skateboarding, right? Is that the plan? Yeah, pretty much. I think, from what I understand, we were in London the other day on a family holiday and I met him and Wig, but I think the idea is, rather than it being like a timeline or anything like that, it's going to be, I suppose, like long-form Instagram style insofar as it'll be a photograph with the backstory of the photographer or the people who were in the photograph or the people who were... Like what we were talking about, how these... You don't talk about these stories you know, they'll disappear forever. So he's going to take that kind of approach to it. And uh, he's got, like, Dan Adams, who's doing the Rad Archives and Wigs yeah, on board, yeah. and Horsley and Sam Ashley. And um, I don't know. I don't know. He's doing it through Palomino as well, Nick Sharrett's thing. So he's got a publisher for it already, and he's he's working on it. So I think it's called, it's called UK Skateboard in 1987 to 2004. And the cutoff point is the beginning of broadband and YouTube and Facebook and all that. So it's yeah, it'll be really good. But again, you know that's that's because there's now this thirst for. It's not even nostalgia, really. It's just a thirst to see all that stuff in a different light. Because but when Sidewalk first went, people were like do a book, do a book, like shut up, dickhead. Like, it's just gone. You know what I mean? It's like, at least give it 10 years and then it'll seem more important than it, than it was. But I think what Neil's doing will be really good. So you should all go follow him at, uh, at science versus life, which is a reference to a book 65 hip hop song called, uh, 15 minutes to live, which was the outro song, on a video called viewfinder, which I was involved in, which is all information that you didn't need to know, but now you do. Yeah, there you go. But I mean, he, what, he does everything really, really nicely, though, doesn't he? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like because he's so an archivist he... in the traditional form. He cares yeah. about history and what have you. Yeah, he's got he's got that curatorial kind of approach to all, hasn't he? Where it's all like you know he's got the exactly. Big picture. I mean, I I don't know the guy, but I just follow him. And oh, he's sound man. He's he's massive. It just and seems Scottish. like so considered, so considered, mm-hmm. like so contextual. You know, like like yeah, archivist, like you say. You know, like actually. It's a life's work. Well, it is a life's work for him, yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
So anyway, I don't want to talk shit on Steve Kane. Steve Kane was like a super important person in my life, but it just, you know, whatever. But yeah, go read that interview. It's interesting. The the the, the foundations of skateboarding in this country was loads of like rich Etonian skiers, which is pretty funny when you think about the, the impression or the image that it's claimed for itself. But yeah, that's kind of what initiated it was like, Dudes who 100 years ago would have been like going to India and shooting elephants with blunderbusses decided to start importing skateboards in London. That is quite funny. Yeah, because <laughs> if I remember rightly, wasn't there a place near Harrods or something? Like originally? There was one in Harrods. Yeah. yeah. Not a three story shop, I think, something crazy like that. Yeah. Which we, you know, we're talking about like the effect the Olympics had, but. Like, that's just a drop in the ocean to the size of it from, like, 75 to 79. Like, it's never going to get back to... Even though when you talk about that, you're talking about, like, kind of elder time, like a Tolkien thing, you know, like, this forgotten age. Because, I mean, I don't know if you're the same, but I grew up reading magazines where they discuss, you know, like, if skateboards stop being produced, if you can't buy trucks anymore, because there'd been this kind of extinction level event in the 70s where you there were no skaters there were no skate parks you couldn't go to a skate shop because there weren't any but you know we hadn't really i guess the closest to that my generation would have been like 92 93 but even then it was still thriving it was just no one else gave a shit about it because it was like this inward looking freestyle reinvention time and i've gone wildly off the topic again and i'm sorry <laughs> I mean, this is the point. This is the point. Oh, of this. Okay. Well, you did say you just wanted a conversation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, to bring it slightly back on on to the chronology. So, um, you moved to Nottingham. You started doing stuff. So, when did when did it start becoming inverted commas a career? Well, I got a job. Uh, I finished university. I did a literature degree. And my intention was to carry on and become an academic, which my girlfriend at the time did and is now a professor uh, in Durham. So what I, my intention was, just go to Nottingham, skate all the time, do an MA, do a PhD, get a job at a university. But through going skating all the time, I got offered a job at Roller Snake. So I ended up working there from like, when did I think, maybe like 93 till 96 or something. And at the same time, Rehab Skate Park in Wakefield, which I was involved in building and whatnot, had opened. So I'd work during the week in Nottingham and then go back to Wakefield at the weekend and work at the skate park. I say work, skate at the skate park, but nominally be on the door taking money off people. And just through doing that, I ended up meeting Wig and Horsley and Percy and Carl Shipman and da 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 And... Um, got a video camera and started filming stuff. And like I said before, just by, because I was the person who said, all right, I'll be there at two o'clock and I was there at two o'clock or I will write a contest report and you'll have it on Friday and actually doing it on time. That turned into me getting, I've gone for a meeting at Yates's Wine Lodge of all places in Nottingham and meeting Jim and Andy Horsley. Uh, the long and the short of it, which was Horsley and Jim both saying, he can't spell his own name. There's no fucking way he should be the editor of a skateboard magazine. Do you want a job? Like, yeah, go on then. And then, yeah, that's that's it. So it was all like this serendipitous, really. It's I didn't 
I mean, I guess I put myself in a position where people were going to ask me to do stuff, but I wasn't doing that thinking I can get a job and move to Nottingham and move to Oxford or whatever. It just, it happened. And then, so I stopped working at Roller Snakes and went and moved to 271 Abingdon Road with Chris Forder and Andy Horsley and John Robson sometimes and Harry sometimes has gone down sometimes and that became what I did. So I buoyed off being an academic, which is probably the right thing to do because I'm pretty sure that, again, without without sounding like a twat, more people would have read Sidewalk than would have read any PhD thesis I'd written on why the Vietnam War influenced the bad ending in horror films, which is probably what I would have written it about, which would have been interesting to about 10 people. I'd read that. Well, me too. I mean, if I hadn't written it, I would have read it as well, but that's that's two of the 10 people that would have read it. So, yeah, and then like, okay, so we can just go skating all the time and that's it. And did you, have, like, earlier you said you, you didn't know what you were doing, but did you have any kind of like plan when you got that job were you like did you have a did you have an idea sort of yeah i my thing was that i didn't like the way that um skateboard coverage was sort of predicated on sponsorship so that i came into it with this thing of right it doesn't matter whether someone's sponsored or not if they're sick then they can have an interview or whatever so one of the things that i guess i invented or came up with not invented it's just a word we used to do the thing called haunts do you remember that in the magazine yeah, it was yeah, supposed to be like a, an extended introduction and the haunts idea was because it was places that that person frequented so it was like their haunts or whatever and the first one of them was with uh paul sylvester also known as man it was like this mute guy from huddersfield who was like switch grinding andrails kind of before anyone who wasn't sponsored Lived in, literally lived in a cupboard, survived on like cans of a Ranji boom and seven pence noodles. And I just figured that people like that probably needed to be in a national magazine as much as the people who were already in the national magazine. So if I brought any kind of ethos, that was probably it. But, you know, that was something that Skane and TLB had had, had at the ethos of their magazine as well. It didn't matter where you came from, you could get in. But that was, yeah, maybe that's, I was always quite a, um, a fervent supporter of trying to get like dudes who've been forgotten about or overlooked and whatnot in there as well, you know? Yeah, because it sounds like you've had this, you've made a couple of references again as well to like almost like having this kind of fervor to like get these stories down. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's feels true. Like that, Absolutely. That, that's, com- that's coming from the same place, isn't it? Mm. You know, like that there's one there's the sort of trunk of it like oh yeah this is like accepted skateboarding history or this is accepted blah 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 which which is which happens doesn't it you know you'll get Mm. this like kind of accepted story like almost like ready-made mythology or whatever Mm. you get that in all of these things but it sounds like for you it was it was you were like well hang on that person this scene this place because mm-hmm. the other thing i was going to say is like it seems as well that play like the play the importance of place without getting too wanky has also been something that's important to you but uh, what's his name what was the psychogeography guy what was it is it lefebvre or whatever ian borden talks <laughs> about him all the time doesn't he oh shit yeah Hang on, I've, I've just pulled the plug out of my wife's yoga ball just a minute 
<laughs> but you didn't um, think you'd be saying that on a no no i didn't know oh whatever it's too late now um yeah well because every everywhere's got like there is there is a master narrative kind of with skateboarding history isn't it it's like tony alva inventing the front side air and the badlands where all the pools were and guns and natas instead i mean and all that's true but then, like, there's a version of that for Heckmanwike, or there's a version of that for Aylesbury, or there's a version of that for somewhere else. And part of my fervor probably is the right word, actually, um, was to try and find out what they were for each place, you know. I mean, like, a good example of that is Jimmy Boys. I remember meeting him, and obviously he'd been in magazines in the 80s, and he was this kind of pioneering street skater who was, like, skating big rails when nobody else was. And then he disappeared, and then me and Horsley went to Durham for some other reason, and we bumped into Jimmy, and I uh, might as well tell you this story because it's, it's just insane how good this is. So they'd squatted in this um, in this like building and built a skate park in it. So the council had come along with um, diggers and filled it all with gravel to stop them skating it. So Jimmy and his mates... Had shoveled all the gravel into bags and had flogged it and used the money they got from <laughs> flogging it to build even more stuff in this uh, in this warehouse. That's and then just brilliant. you know, and that it was things like that that made me excited about skating because as a fourteen-year-old kid, I'd looked at photos of him board sliding this rail in Plymouth that was really famous. Or and then like ten years later, I'm sat at a warehouse in Durham and him telling me this story about how he died and come back to life and all this mad shit. That's that's what was exciting for me, that kind of um, the density of the narrative that there is in skateboarding. If you go looking for it, do you know what I mean? You don't just have to be, you know, a doctor top 10 just did a nose ground down a 20 stair handrail. There's all these other like different different stories to find. If It's something we got into a lot of shit for with advertisers, to be honest, because that from their perspective and you know and I, as a as a man now i can see why they were like well why are you giving fucking this dude that can't do anything an interview when we're putting all this advertising in for these brands and there's no americans in it i was like well because we want to hear about tattoo al's job as a grave digger or because that was like not just me that was our way of looking at it and if, if we did anything maybe we kind of might have been not the first people to do that, but we kind of championed that as an ethos of looking at an, a national culture without looking at it through the lens of like the 10 best people kind of, you know? Yeah. And also not looking to the States, you know, like as for, for legitimizing it. I mean, don't get me wrong. We were, that's what that we were hyped on American skating, but we felt like, well, there's already four magazines or, why do we need to put Americans in this one? We might as well put English or British people, Irish people, whatever in that one, you know? Shout out to Scotland. I nearly said English, but I meant British, obviously. Don't want to <laughs> fall out with my Scottish brethren. Or Welsh, even. But I'm half Irish, a bit Welsh anyway. I'm going to consult a couple of the questions now that we're getting into uh, war, sto- war story territory. I'm glad I remembered that Jimmy one because that was a good one. Let's have a look what we got. Oh, here's a good one. Ask him about the Jagger brothers in Wakefield. How did they <laughs> how did they fund the park? What happened to them? Where are they now? There's quite a few people mentioned this. Yeah, yeah. Well, that park was, I mean, obviously Chris Ince and Radlands, that was the kind of 
the Premier Park, you know, that's where all the Euro champs and whatnot was. But Rehab Skate Park, I mean, even just what it, before it was a skate park, it was the DSS Skills Centre. So that in itself is like, there's a, like a foundational narrative before you even begin that's pretty funny. I mean, that's but always that's, too brilliant, isn't it? That's yeah, too, it's too like funny. you couldn't write it, could you? And uh, it was, I mean, it, initially it was called Simon's Psycho Warehouse and it was funded by a professional, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it was funded by a professional rugby player who played for Wakey Trinity who was into rollerblading because this was when like rollerblading was massive. And then I think he maybe joined forces with the Jaggers, who were uh, like local business people, let's let's leave it at that, who had their hands in lots of different yeah. pies and um, had kids that were into rollerblading. Every, every Northern Town Adam. Yeah, they were like, you know, like kind of not Peaky Blinders-esque, but they, they were like, they were known people, you know what I mean? And that, yeah, yeah. And for yeah, some yeah. reason, they were like, they were really proud of being from Wakefield and they kind of got us all involved and like, we're going to build a skate park. I want it to be the best one in the country. Like fuck everywhere else. Like we, ours is going to be better than everyone's. So you're like sick. Like when you're running about building, we're just like, okay, well we want you to build blocks in it. Cause there's no proper step blocks in any skate parts in Britain. Okay. When it was all built like by dodgy grafters and powered by staying up for like 48 hours at a time. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Um, anyway, so <laughs> That was like a very, my own personal involvement in skateboarding is very tied to that place. And a lot of other like, you know, Northern people who went on to be successful, like Mark Baines and uh, Paul Sylvester and Lee Rosie and Matt Arfield, a bunch of people who were skating anyway, but that was like a, that was a Northern focus place. Um, It lasted a few years. I can't remember how long it was, maybe like four or five years, but. The, the the questions about what happened to the Jagger kids, isn't it? So they they were in a boy band for a bit that had like moderate levels of success. We went to see them; they were quite good. And then the oldest one, who I think was Dean, was in Game of Thrones. He's like a, a renowned actor now. He's I haven't watched Game of Thrones, but I've seen the the really? scene is he's like some like yeah like Northern barbarian who headbutts somebody to death. But he's in it quite a lot. You'll have to. I can't remember the name of the character, but if you look it up on IMDb and put in Dean Jagger, it'll come up. But he was, yeah, like he's he's a successful actor. We still see him sometimes right. in town. They had like a fashion shop and whatnot. So they went on to do some cool stuff. And the the kids like, I mean, rollerblading kind of died a death and it didn't really provide a career option, but they were like shockingly good at rollerblading as well. Because they were just like hard, wakey lads who got into something and would just be really good at it because they weren't scared of falling. But yeah, yeah, he's in Game of Thrones. I don't know about the younger ones, but shout out the Jaggers, man. That park was next level. Nine bar, that's what Evan used to call him. That's funny. That, that yeah. Because there was a few people that were going like, oh yeah, didn't they? Because it ended up getting comments like, oh yeah, they started a boy band and all this. Is like, Yeah, that's true. That's true. And their dad, Steve Jagger, dropped in on the vert ramp in cowboy boots, like ski foot style. Just because we what said he a, dared do it, like what you know, a like, and it, and he like <laughs> rode to the other side just through the power of being hard. It's like okay, I'm not going to fall off. So yeah, shout out them guys. They were good. All right, here's another one. Who would get cancelled the hardest um, for their conduct now? 
Ah, see, I saw that on Instagram. Like, not really into that kind of question. All I'll say is, right, in the uh, early to mid-90s, there was a grip tape company named after the fucking street name for Raw Hypnol. And there were, like, wheel companies that had oh. hookers in their ads and shit. So we're not even scratching the surface of who would or would get cancelled. The whole thing was, like, not conscious, really, at all of... You know, I love California. I've got a lot of Californian friends. I've been there a lot. I love the place. But there's a level of, like, fucking insulation from the rest of the world that really was, like, a part of skateboarding bro culture for a while. So, like, half the fucking industry would get cancelled. Never mind individuals. You know what I mean? Can you, like, like naming your brand after raw hypnolis, that yeah. in itself is pretty sketchy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned that book that I've done recently. I think looking at that now in the cold light of day, like, I, it, mm. I, I don't know how I feel about it in some ways because I sort of feel like it's it's quite a... Because, yeah, there's a very problematic aspect to it, isn't there? Let's just put it that way, to mm. that, that strain of sort of Californian um, culture. So, like, mm. yeah, it... it, it, it it, it's kind of almost been sidelined a little bit that hasn't it or forgotten a bit you know mm-hmm. like it's still it's still there like definitely and people are still aware of it and there's still elements mm. of that but it was pretty it was pretty bad really but but then on the other hand you know you had like the thornhill laura thornhill in the 70s and you had carabeth burnside and you had yeah. you know jamie Rees getting a thrasher cover and all that so for for a sort of you know blinkered and like daft as that era was there was a lot of like you know it, it wasn't all like that by any means you know what i mean yeah yeah that's but fair. yeah i wouldn't no, really want to answer that question because it's i mean i get why people are asking that's probably what i'd put if someone else was getting interviewed i'd put that down as a question but it is what it is it's it's of its time and it you know what i mean if, if people were dicks they're going to get called out they don't need me to call them out so how about the next one mike valley story from radlands <laughs> Okay, so I mean, since made peace with that, although I don't even know if he if he knew, whatever. But I seen him a few years ago at um, Wheels Wheels and Waves. I think I forgot what it's called now. It was a festival in um, in Kent somewhere, and he came with Sad Plant. Is is it Sad Plant? His company, I think it is. And he was really nice, and we hung out, and it was all good. But basically, that story relates to. Um, a Radlands contest, obviously the big Radlands. I don't know if it was the one that Tom won '95. It might have been '95, or it might have been '96. There's a lot but, of apocryphal uh, tales fly around about this. Yeah, yeah. When I come on to some more of them apocryphal tales, actually, because there's quite a lot surrounding that. Um, and the, the long and the short of it was, the, back then, skateboarding celebrity didn't mean anything, did it? There was no VIP fucking areas, whatever. You just you went to Radlands. Can I have a sig? Oh, it's Guy Mariano. Guy Mariano gives you a sig because Guy Mariano's the same as you. There's no difference. But at some point, either Mike V or Mike V's wife or Mike V's entourage or someone decided that they didn't want to wait in line for a sandwich or they didn't have a vegetarian sandwich and threw a bit of a strop. And I mean, I was there, but I can't say I saw it firsthand, but I was I remember hearing it firsthand like maybe flipped up a table or flipped some sandwiches over because they were angry. I mean, fair dues. He'd probably been skating for 10 hours. He was hangry, wasn't he? But it was a bit unacceptable. 
Plus, the Inch brothers were rock hard. They didn't look like they were rock hard, but they were from Northampton, so of course they were rock hard. So it probably wasn't a very good idea. And as a result of that, I don't think he came back for a while. But then he was at G97, so maybe he did. Maybe he didn't come the next year or something. And uh, one time he was at NAS, uh, and Ryan and I made a, a, vid, a contest video. And there were blipverts of cheese and onion sandwiches all the way through his <laughs> through his footage, just us being like really, really fucking childish, just to amuse ourselves. But yeah, in his defence, he was one of the most influential skateboarders of the nineteen eighties, and it turned out was like totally sound when I met him ten, fifteen years later. But yeah, the uh, the cheese and onion sandwich gate but went down as a skateboard folklore. On those apocryphal tales, like. It, it it's a bit like you know if in doubt print the legend a lot of that isn't it you know like it's become it's of become... course man yeah but i mean that did actually happen i don't know how because it's a good story isn't it it's like someone being like a prima donna in a country where no one got paid to be a pro skater of course everyone's gonna think you're a bell end do you know what i mean that's that just goes with it maybe people wouldn't think you were a bell end now because maybe you'd expect a rider and you'd expect some fucking sparkling water and what have you but then, yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean? You were lucky if someone gave you some Rizzlers. The fuck, who are you, Tony Hawk? You can pay, man. Do you know what I mean? That's how it goes. <laughs> you, said you, you said you were going to mention some of the other apocryphal Well, there's another one. Era. See, I wasn't here for this one. but So I went to all the Radlands contest, apart from the one which I've heard it referred to as Spitgate. And uh, it was the year before when nobody knew Tom Penny was. And some of the sort of high-profile Americans were not very nice to him, were like laughing at his clothes and like clowning his style and everything. And then like the next year, they were all like fucking, you know, polishing his dome for want of another way of saying it and basically realised that, okay, this is the future of skateboarding in, in a single human. But yeah, just just yeah. being dicks, basically. But again, that's, that's that insular sort of Californian way of thinking, you know. Until Flip came about, Californian skateboarding had never been influenced by outside sources, has it? So it's not a like a justification for it, but that's why people were like that, because they were like, well, of course you can't be any good. You're not from, you know, El Segundo or whatever. But yeah, yeah, yeah. that was funny. Just how everyone much kissed his ass the next year. It's like, who's this little scarecrow kid? Oh, fucking hell. Oh, I'm going to have to be his best <laughs> mate now. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to reach into a couple more of these questions. I mean, this is this is quite a topical one. Is the current boom in skateboarding sustainable? Is it fueled by dads and girls? It is fueled by it is fueled by dads and girls, but also it's completely sustainable because there's an infrastructure to sustain it now. So the things that make skateboarding different, not worse or better than when I was involved in doing a magazine are also what make it sustainable. So when we first started doing Sidewalk, there were probably like 20 very good skateboarders in the country. Now there's 20 very good skateboarders in every small town in the country because there are skateboard parks everywhere and not shit skateboard parks, not flat bank driveway quarter pipe, like really good skate parks. Um, and it's it's you don't get shit for it anymore. People like it. Like the kids that I teach at school are the sort of kids who beat me and my brother up for having air walks on in 1985 or whatever. 
and they might not do it, but they know Tony Hawk is. They know they they might even know Dylan Reader and shit is. They know that it's cool. They know that girls do it, boys do it. Like there's an LGBT plus aspect to it. He can make money out of it. So yeah, it's sustainable. And I'll tell you right now, all them people who've got skate shops who fucking put their heart and soul into it and made absolutely fuck all and done like a gym pesket, but on a different level, like long may they reap the benefits of this. But yeah, it, it, I mean, it, you know, shout out to people like Danny Gallagher and Kirsty Tonner who do Girl Skate UK and all the people who've, you know, mobilised that community using the you know, the good side of social media. And then, you know, you, you see that girl, Ryasa Leal, the 13-year-old from Brazil. Like, are we going to watch her yeah. if you're a 10-year-old girl and not think, I want a backsmith Andrails. Look how fucking sick that looks. Yeah, of course yeah. you're going to want to do it because it looks sick, doesn't it? And someone else has done it, therefore it's possible. So I can't see it dying. The reason it died before is because the first time it died in the elder time, like we say, the extinction level event, the fucking dinosaur era was because if you didn't have facilities, you couldn't skateboard. So when all the parks shut, there was no reason to do it anymore. It's like trying to be into ping pong when there's no ping pong tables. Of course, you're going to stop doing it. And then because people then realized we can build your own ramps, you don't have to wait for somebody to do it and you don't even need a ramp. You can go and skate the street, blah, blah, blah. Now you've got that mentality. Plus there are skate parks everywhere. I'm pretty sure there's not any city in this country that doesn't have at least three skate parks they might be shit but that you think about from our era man there were two indoor skate parks in the country there was harrow there was romford there was stevenage and there was livy and there were a couple of other shit ones here and there you know maybe like what's the one in liverpool the old knackered 70s one i can't remember it's called now but but that that's why it's sustainable because there's an infrastructure to do it like, why are you not going to go to a skate park? It's free. There's girls there. There's boys there. There's Your dad can go. Your mum can go. It's just like there's no reason not to do it now. It's still cool and everyone can do it. There you go. Answered that one. I remember uh, getting a train to Shrewsbury because I had a mini ramp. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, there you go. From where? From was... Manchester or Sheffield? Yeah. From Manchester, yeah. mission. Well, we used to get the we used to get the bus, the the yeah, the coach to Manchester to skate a fucking curb. Like it just seems absolutely insane that people would do that, but that's what they did. But they don't have to do yeah. that now. But the downside of that is, is that you don't have so much of a sort of a nationally minded skate scene. Maybe I mean I guess that's what skateboarders' companions trying to like feed into a little bit to have like a kind of a more of a national perspective than a like micro scenes are interesting though because micro scenes are what created people like neil blender or natas cowpus or whatever so you had a venice micro scene with like loads of curbs and whatnot so he could learn how to do all this crazy shit and you had sad lands so that created all these that's what that, that the micro scene pollination thing that's what happens in this country now. Each each like little skate park will have like a an eighties dude, you know, like a dead Dave or whatever, and it'll have like a a Niger clone, and it'll have a somebody who's into like Letitia Buffoni and somebody who's into someone else, and 
there's all these little that's fucking interesting to me man like it is it's diverse not on an ideological level but just even on like a performative level every skate park you go to i've got the skate park of thorns down the road that myself and wayne from division 24 shout out division 24 the skate shop in wakefield were involved in getting built and the, there's like dudes dressed like fucking jeff grosso there's dudes dressed like daily thompson there's girls in like full, what do they call it? <laughs> Cottage core outfits, like nice cheesecloth dresses. There's people with tracksuits on. It's mental. It's mental. So yes, it is sustainable for that precise reason. You're so right. Because, you know, whenever, I'm, I mean, I'm strictly like 7am club really, whenever I- Oh yeah, yeah. Days. Dawn patrol forever, man. And it's, it, it is funny. It is funny. Because you get, you get your old, uh, you know, your older generation and, uh, you know, we've got old school Mike. Um, you know, like, an, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a picture painted right there. Yeah, yeah. The dude with his laces, like Rambo tight, like so <laughs> tight that it looks like Rambo's stitching on his arm in first blood. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I just, how, how has work for you the last 18 months? You know, normally do the COVID part of it at uh, the beginning of the conversation. but Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, got, we've got to do COVID, haven't we? It's... You've been at the sharp end a bit, really, haven't you, I guess? So my, the last third of my uh, teacher training was cancelled because that's so we we had like an assembly on what was it March the twenty third when it when the lockdown started, like yeah. March the twenty second they were like right it's the last day of your teacher training at this school you just go home don't leave your house try not to die it's like all right sick and then the university basically said that's not happening there's no more placements. So I only did two thirds of teacher training because of COVID and then obviously still still had to pay tuition fees for like three phone calls. Cheers for that, like three grand a phone call, whatever. But moving past that. Um, but when I started my first job, it was um, the school I work at never shut because if you have uh, LAC kids, so no, hang on. Yeah, looked after LAK, looked after kids, looked after children. Children who are in vulnerable situations. They all still went to school, so we never closed. We well, we closed for like maybe a week or something when everyone got COVID and there were no staff left to teach. But apart from that, I've been at work the whole time, like wearing masks and stuff. And you know, it, yeah, it was it was a bit weird, but it kind of it made me um less scared i guess because like kids at school man they're not doing any of they're not social distancing or any of that shit especially not where i work and we all got it and it was grim and then okay well i guess that's how it is so we'll just get on with it when i, I done working in a mainstream school with like three thousand kids must have been like torturous i've got friends who did that and like people who were terrified to go to work and and what have you it's grim really but is what it is, isn't it? Like I said, that's why, like, I'm not worried about the fact that I'm not fucking skateboard man anymore because other shit came along that was a bit more significant and a bit more real. So stop worrying yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, this one's from me. Uh -huh. um, quite specifically, who's your favourite British skateboarder? I thought I knew you were going to ask me this. So, I mean, it changes all the time, but I mean, primarily. It's going to Tom Penny because he's a. I mean, I'm going to, there's going to be more than this, but let's say Tom Penny first because a it's Tom Penny, 
He's like paradigm shifting. <laughs> he was the first person who kind of made it. You could do technical tricks in like an elegant, transcendentally nonchalant way. You could catch tricks in the air and you could manipulate tricks with your feet. Nobody really had done that before. Maybe Jeremy Ray a little bit, but not before Tom. Because the Oxford connection, because we knew him a bit as he used to come around the house and whatnot, and he's just a thoroughly nice dude, man, who talks like this. And oh, my God. It's like when my wife first met him, she was like, we used to do this impression, which was that voice, and that's what he actually sounds like. <laughs> and she was like, oh, no way, that's what he sounds like. Yeah, see, we weren't joking. She's like, I feel like I've just met Gandalf. It's like, yeah, fair dues. You pretty much have. <laughs> so, obviously, Tom. And then the rest of the flip dudes, Jeff and everybody, all those guys equally like paradigm shifting. And then I guess like Harry, Harry Bastard, a.k.a. Alan Cuthbertson. It was just a sort of, he was pro for Unabomber. You, I lived with him in Nottingham for a while and then he lived with us in Oxford and he had crazy pop and was really outspoken about everything. And did just like, he was like a kind of, his, like his morality was so straightforward. Like if you were a dick, he was going to tell you and you were going to just leave because you deserved it. And he could fucking ollie so high and he was so excited to watch. And then who else? So but you say British skaters, didn't you? Oh yeah, I said British. But you but but feel free to feel free to expand. Okay. And then Michael Wright, who was again was like we were really close for a long time. I haven't seen him for a while now, but a dude from Ebden Bridge, who I'm sure you're aware of, who was like one of the most naturally gifted skateboards I've ever seen, or even though he'd fucking hate being described as naturally gifted. So I'm not naturally gifted. I used to skate for 10 hours a day. Don't be a cunt. So fair enough, you're not that. But the same thing, the sort of people who could be (laughs) playful, you know, like who could be incredibly good, but make it look really playful and and just make you want to go skating, really. And then Sean Smith from Milton Keynes on a kind of purely foot mathematics level did some just it should be like a massive super pro should be a global a global name but isn't because he couldn't be asked he was like whatever well, skating and i'll just do something else he's now a very good plasterer shout out vertex plastering and there's loads of people karan gale another one like supremely talented makes it look fun nice dude um and then i guess you've got people like lois pendlebury who were you know, pioneers, there were female skaters before Lois, but just, you know, like slamming, smashing her teeth out, not giving a shit, going on road trips with like 10 dudes and just not caring, being amazing. Andy Scott, who used to live in my old house with Ryan Grow, used to work with, who's like basically Yoda. Another one, first person to do the kickflip twist, should be a millionaire. A good story, well, I, should, I probably shouldn't tell it because I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but uh, just fucked, I can't be arsed with America, just went home, went back to Bolton. I were a legend, you know what I mean? It's like, I could yeah, be yeah. there, but it sounds like a pain in the arse. I'm going to go back to Bolton and skate with my mates instead. Yeah, legendary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lois is like a shepherd now, isn't she? She is, yeah. I spoke to her recently. She was going to do a teacher uh, training degree, but decided to be a shepherd instead, as you do. Yeah. But yeah. that's, that's you know, that's um sort of, emblematic of what she's like as a person it's like fuck it i'll just be a shepherd see what happens 
It's like pretty ballsy, isn't it? Yeah. You know what I mean? There's there's loads of other people, but they're probably the ones that that come to mind straight away. I mean, I, I could do a list that'd be as long as your arm, you know, like. But yeah, they're the, they're the ones that I probably spent the most time watching in real life and on video and whatnot. And then wider than that, like Neil Blender. I'm a big fan of Neil Blender. If people don't know who Neil Blender is, I mean, they should know who Neil Blender is. Just go watch um, GNS footage and then you'll see. He was the originator of doing your own graphics and being a skater artist without it being cheesy. Kind of before Gons, really. He was like the precursor to that, making tricks up and playing. People who can... Um, I mean, ultimately, that's what it is, isn't it? It's playing. But people who can play on a, like I said, on a on a transcendent level, kind of. Yeah. I mean, that's what they've all got in common, everyone you've said, really, isn't it? It's like um, the word transcendent kind of comes into it, taking you, yeah, more than some of its parts, you know, the fantasy fodder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they were like somewhere else when they're doing it, you know, it's like, in certain people's cases because they're off their heads, in other people's cases because they're just like strange outliers that don't. Yeah. You know, that was sick. Or was it? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, final one I've I've kept, which is from also the questions. Um, I think I know the answer, but it's, it's a good one to round it off given how we started the conversation. Would you consider resurrecting Sidewalk? (laughs) <laughs> nah nah I would consider well I'm going to get involved with Neil's book project which will cover I mean quite a bit of that will be sidewalk related because that's 95 to well so he's doing 87 to 2004 so 95 to 2004 so I'll be involved in that I, just, I don't there's no need to do that man really I mean you know if, if in a few years time somebody comes and says do you want to do a book and I guess did that Milton Keynes book with Wig and Rye? That was cool. I don't know. Is it a skateboard yeah, should look forward, shouldn't it? It should be interested in its in its history and it, it, the stories are important. But you know, it's, I've had my say. People have heard me talk enough. This evening being a good example of that. <laughs> but so I'm not ruling it out. But I'm not like it's not like high on my. It's probably lower on my list of agendas than cleaning the windows. Have you still got that same kind of urge to to keep keep telling the tales though? Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, the reason I've cancelled the first time, not cancelled it, but postponed it, was because uh, I was interviewing Morph and Chewy Cannon the other day. Some uh, free kindly asked me to do that. Um, so yeah, I'm hundred percent up for. I want to do that all the time, but I just don't want the personal responsibility of it being in a backpack attached to my shoulders anymore. I'm quite happy to yeah. do the same thing for someone else, and then they can try and make it fit in 10 pages rather than me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've got a good a good balance now, like with, like you were saying earlier. You know, got the can still, got the outlets, can still do it, can still Mm-mm. tell the stories that you want to tell. Um, but yeah, without the without the 20 Facebook posts a day. Yeah, I don't need to do that anymore, man. I'm 50 in a year and a half, you know? Like, I need to be a dad to my kid and not be, like, getting angry because somebody else has kickflipped some stairs. Like, come on. You know what I mean? There's more important things in life than than stuff like that. But at the same time, you know, skateboarding is a transformative thing. It's like it's a it's the nearest to kind of untrammeled joy 
that I can think of really. It's like people take drugs to get the same reason, but you can get it the same feeling rather. People take drugs to chase the same feeling, but you can and the weird thing is, as I get older, I've realised that you can still get that feeling, even though you're fat and shit like I am. I can still go out and do effectively nothing and still have a really good time. So there you go. How are you feeling about 50? It's what it is, isn't it? I didn't really feel that good about 40. didn't feel that good about 30. I've started going to the gym because I am larger than I should be. And that's making doing like flip tricks difficult because I've got extra weight and my obviously my knees and ankles aren't brilliant. But if I can tan that in the gym, turn into like sweaty gym dad, I can handle 50. Come back and ask me in a year and a half if I've lost like four stone, I'll be buzzing. If I'm skinny, if I'm as skinny as you and when I'm 50, I'll be height. I do have a thirst though. I think it's the it's the Irish man in me. It's a favourable angle. Yeah. It's, don't don't believe well, it. Well, this must be an unfavourable angle then, because I like Mr. Punch that's been pumped up. <laughs> oh, mate, that was great. Thanks a lot for doing it. Um, You're welcome. Thank you very much for asking me. I'm glad I kept on at you for four years. So there you go. That was me and Ben, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, incidentally, because it's been a long time since I've dusted off this old chestnut, then why not share it, you know, on social media and all that? It takes, like, 20 seconds and is a really simple and free way of helping me get more ears on this uh, also free and ad free podcast which to be honest takes me quite a lot of time each week so it all helps and if it's your first time listening to the show because I imagine this one's pulled in a few new punters and you enjoyed this chat head over to my website www.wearelookingsideways.com there's a big archive on there almost 200 episodes at last count includes chats with people like Cairo Foster Jamie Thomas, Cara Beth Burnside, Leo Sharp, Tim Letton Boyce, and loads more. Definitely some stuff you'll enjoy in there. Thank you, Ben, for coming on the show. And thanks for contributing to my book, Looking Sideways, Volume 1, which we discussed at the beginning of the conversation. If you enjoyed that chat, you'll probably enjoy the book, which you can find over at the same website, www.wearelookingsideways.com, and then click in the tab marked book. And while you're there, why not sign up for my newsletter, which goes out every Friday, well, usually, sometimes I miss the odd week when I'm a bit busy or whatever. Once a fortnight, I share the 10 things I think are worth sharing that week. And then every other fortnight, I share a blog from either myself or one of my guests. If you like the podcast, you'll probably like the newsletter too. Incidentally, a fortnight, if you're from the States, is two weeks. I mean, I thought that was common, but apparently not because I posted something about that on Instagram. And I had a couple of people going, what's a fortnight? There you go. So housekeeping corner. And after last week's epic, I don't have a huge amount to say this week. Although I do have a little bit of an apology slash mea culpa. Um, because when I was talking about James Hope Gill, I did basically um, speculate on his salary. And I think I said it was, I, I imagined he was on about 150, 200 grand, which was a bit of an irrelevant point anyway. Um, turns out I was wildly wrong on that. And actually, not only did James work for free for a while, but he's um, on significantly less than that, um, which makes the job that he's done even more impressive, if you ask me. But yeah, I should have checked that. A little bit sloppy. So I'm going to hold my hands up um, because that information was also quite readily available. Um, not really my style to just kind of wing it in that way. So apologies for that. Um, I do feel the need to fess up to these little glitches every now and again, which is what I'm doing now. So, uh, yeah. 
Anyway, what else is going on? While I'm heading to France, um, I'll probably might even be in France by the time this comes out. I'm heading to Brittany for a surf trip and then I'm heading across to Normandy where myself and my other half, Alima, have actually bought some land which we're going to go and check out. So that's exciting basically because we can't afford anywhere in the UK and land in France is really cheap. So there you go. Um, I've also been doing some writing. My pals at White Lines asked me to write a column on the topic of politics in action sports, which has been interesting, I must say, and uh, a privilege as ever to write for White Lines. Uh, I believe this is now my 26th year writing for that title, which is over half my life. I had to think about that. Wow, that's mental. So yeah, uh, that one is for the print issue, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. So thanks for to Ed and friends for that. And I've also been chatting to my pals at the London Surf Film Festival about um, joining this year's event as a juror, which in their 10th year is obviously a great honour. Um, so thank you, Chris and Demi, for asking me to take part in that. I'm stoked and I'll be uh, relishing the prospect to help you guys put that um, legendary event on. Um, and I'm also thinking of trying to move to Cornwall for the winter. Um, I was down there recently and me and my wife were like, do you know what? We could just move down here for a bit. So that's what we're trying to sort out. Although that one could take a few planets to align. To be honest, I'm not normally one that tempts fate by going on about things before they've happened. But in this case, I thought I'd mention it to as many people as possible to see if I could kind of somehow will it into existence and talking to the many, many thousands of people that listen to this um, is certainly one way of doing that. So let's see. All right, that's it for this week. If you enjoyed that episode and you want even more shit from me, then over on my Instagram, um, at We Look Sideways, I've been breaking down some of my recent blog posts and putting them out as a series of posts, which seems to be going down pretty well. So you could go and have a gander at that as well, at We Look Sideways. As I said, all right, I'll be back next week with more of the usual. In the meantime, have a good one. Nice one. <laughs>